Hello and welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today. We're looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of revolutionary movements in China, starting from 1839 and the First Opium War, going to the present. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. The beginning announcements. We have some exciting developments on this front. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, uh, please rate and review on all platforms. Share with your friends. You can go to buymeacoffee.com/crpodcast. Uh, I got my first email and Substack subscription, even though I had kind of started to give up on the Substack.、Um, You you can go to ChineseRevolutions.substack.com.、Uh, I heard from a user who will who has now inspired me to start sharing the episode notes for each episode. So I'm going to start with the you know, start with the very first episode and then work my way forward. And then as I catch up with the episodes that are coming out, will come out、uh, the you know so for paid Substack. Uh, subscribers, you'll get the notes that I use for recording the podcast, but cleaned up a bit so that it's a little more helpful to look at.、Um, and there's only so then. So just right now, I'd like to make the point:、uh, if you contact me with things you'd like to hear more about, you know, right now things you know are you know can happen. And、uh, you can be one of the first and still make a mark on this podcast.、Um, the only caveat is you can have more detail about anything, but I'm going to share what I find to be true. So if I find that puppies and kittens are horrid monsters, that's what I'm going to say. It doesn't you know, doesn't matter what you pay me to say. If puppies and kittens are horrid monsters, that's what you're going to hear. So,、uh, we'll dive into today's episode. Oh yes, also please send me an email: Chinese Revolutions at gmail dot com. I'd love to hear from you. See what you think. All that. Here we go.、Uh, we are stepping back、uh, from the main Taiping Rebellion narrative for two or three episodes. Foreigners in China will be a critical factor in all of the revolutions up until nineteen forty nine. Foreign influence will prevent some revolutions from fully turning over. You know, a revolution is a turning over.、Um, foreign influence will help create new professional and educated classes from which revolutionaries will come. It's not so much a matter of Chinese having no education as it is there will be a different kind of education, and so. The difference between the Confucian educated classes and the foreign. Like professional army or、uh, business sort of training, those classes will create a different set of people with a different set of ideas about how to help China go forward. Foreign influence will also give Chinese the patterns by which they will reassert their own sovereignty in the international order.、Uh, so the this the stages of this series. 
um, this this series on foreign settlements uh, around uh, just about before the opium no uh, before the Taiping Rebellion and the Second Opium War. We're looking at foreign settlements in China. What those look like. We're looking at the foreigners creating and developing institutions in China. We're looking at foreign law subordinating Chinese sovereignty and the safe spaces that this creates for Chinese revolutionaries, and we're pointing out the classes of Chinese formed by association with you know, foreigners. So, uh, the book that I'm drawing on for today's episode is The Scramble for China, Foreign Devils in the Qing Empire, 1832-1914, to by Robert Bickers. When foreign trade was limited to Canton or Guangzhou, only foreign men and no women at all were allowed there for certain trading periods. But you know, Cantonese you know, possession... No, no, not Cantonese. Portuguese possession of Macau set another precedent for long-term foreign presence in China. So when the British took Hong Kong, it's like, okay, we want another Macau. Um, so, you know, for the uh, the Opium War of 1839 to 1842 forced open additional treaty ports. So for trading activity and missionary work, it allowed for foreigners to settle, to you know, be on site for, you know, for getting business done, uh, for foreign consuls to set up operations. So governing foreigners and carrying on the official relationship with local authorities. And one interesting thing is that businessmen could somehow buy their way into representing the interests of foreign countries with little to do in China. And so this would give them an official cover for their operations in China, and it put them somewhat beyond the reach of their own country's consuls. So, like, you could have an American representing Prussia, or, you know, somebody representing Mexico or Panama, who may not have a whole lot going on there. Today, it's going to be very different, because people from everywhere around China can, you know, fairly safely and cheaply just fly right there, and there you go. Let's take a look at the consuls. In official and in facts-on-the-ground capacities, they mediated between Chinese and foreign interests. You know, if Chinese hatred of foreigners grew too much, you know, isolated foreign, isolated single or groups of foreigners could get beaten up or murdered. It could grow into incidents leading foreign nationals to demand action from their governments to deal with these things, to make the Chinese say sorry, or things like that. Uh, they represented the interests of foreign governments to local Chinese authorities and you know, focusing on ensuring a stable business environment. So part of it was insisting on equal, of, equal dignity between non-Chinese countries and China. Like So a lot of what the previous diplomatic missions had tried to achieve was, it's like, look, uh, you're a country, we're a country, let's meet up and talk about, you know, making a nice agreement to live together, work together. Well, no, the, the Chinese thing is we are the 
empire around which the world revolves and your civilizedness or uncivilizedness is according to how much you lean toward or away from our own civilization. Well, and then the Opium War destroyed the idea that they could just do that, no questions asked. And so then now you have the negotiated settlement between the Qing Empire and all these foreign countries. Uh, and so with the consuls, don't forget that trade was the reason for all of this intervention in the first place. So if the traders are not making money and the subjects of these European powers are actively being harmed, well, then they have to do something about that. You know, the traders pay taxes, and so, or they make bequests to the government, and so, you know, the government needs that money, so they need to intervene to help out the traders. And uh, just to, you know, even a little more detail here, really small things could become issues for foreign consuls, like a goat owned by a British man in Shanghai damaging Chinese neighbors' property, or you know, local servants. They're mistreated or beaten or they're fired. You know, like, there's no way to settle that with you know, fluent conversation because not a lot of people know Chinese that well or English that well. There's kind of a pigeon that they use. So, you know, there's no way to tell, like, if a servant, are they new to the job? Do they just not know how to do something yet? Are they evil or dangerously careless and they need to be thrown out? Um, like, and that even, you know, their, you know, like their relatives would say, oh, yeah, you know, he's, you know, he's always been like that. No wonder you fired him. Like, are are, you know, is the servant like almost there, almost perfect, but they're just one catastrophic teachable moment away from like finally being the best servant you've ever had? Are they just having a bad day? Like they're not about to murder you in your bed. They're just having a bad day and they broke the crockery. Um, it's hard to, to figure that out. Uh, misunderstandings in market exchanges is something not available, you know, like a seasonal product. Um, you know, you, you could discover your new favorite Chinese fruit, but it was in season last week. This week it isn't. Uh, or like, is someone getting cheated? You know, like, like there's often the foreigner price. Like, okay, let's see how much we can get away with charging these people. Um, and then, you know, the friend price. You know, the foreigner thinks, aha, yes, I, I want the friend price. Well, yes, of course you do, but you don't have any idea of how to sit and interact pleasantly with the shopkeeper so that you know they get the human interaction out of it that they so desperately need. But you know, then you also show yourself to be a decent human being, and then, yeah, okay, you can have something like the friend price. Uh, you know, foreigner caught cheating... You know, remember the Opium War started because of foreigners pushing their own uh, illicit trade. You know, when people feel 
like they, they've been caught, like they'll double down on, you know, fighting for their own innocence or something. You know, so if the rumor mill is allowed to be the thing that makes the final judgment, that's, that's disastrous. So like Chinese authorities have extra pressure to make sure that you know, a good settlement comes through foreign consuls, try to make sure that something gets worked out. And, you know, cultural attitudes held by foreigners uh, and the development of a pidgin language of exchange uh, kind of contributed to an interesting dimension of how things were going to go. There were kind of two main kinds of foreigners present. The, the first kind was they're coming to make money and go home. They wanted to recreate things from their home countries in China because they wanted to be able to keep their sanity while they made the money that they... I'm talking mostly about British uh, people because that's what I have most in the books that I'm looking at. You can kind of carry this over to other European powers. you know. So they just want to make the money that they can go home and buy an estate with or they can buy a seat in parliament with, you know, so they, they're not really thinking about being in China. So there's huge importation of foreign food and drink, especially good liquor, uh, subscription libraries with, you know, literature in their own language. Uh, one book, one sentence from the book we're drawing on today what is it? Foreign Devils in the Qing Empire. Gosh, what is it? The Scramble for China. More books arrived about Egypt than China in one early batch. I remember being in Ghana for a linguistics internship in college, and I brought a book about China with me. I had very little interest in Ghana at the time. You know, so it, it just makes sense that these people who are in China, they're going to be reading about the latest British adventure in Egypt, the uh, push to create the Suez Canal, for example, that's their good old empire at work, you know, putting, you know, putting the world, you know, more under their control, more for their convenience. And so that's going to be more interesting than China, which is just kind of there and as much as it's a source of money, yay, great, when I've made enough, I'd like to just go home and buy my estate. Uh, I had a friend who worked at a second-hand store in Beijing at this charity that collected up the stuff left behind by the families of foreign executives who had come to do their two-plus years in China. You know, there was, an, a like, like, so it's, so, you know, it's good. It's recycling you know, quality stuff that foreign expats have bought up. And then, well, they they have their own stuff back in America or England or wherever they came from. So they just leave it all. They just send it all to this charity. And so my friend was astonished, you know, how much trashy romance novels just how much trashy romance literature was read by expat housewives, some of it really trashy stuff. So just, I, I, I give you that detail to give you the idea of just 
how on the edge of things foreigners living in China would feel. Uh, There's a a huge pressure in cross-cultural existence. It's like, you know, even when you're dealing with people in your own culture, you don't absolutely know that it went right, but you gave the hundred little signals that have been baked into you since you were a child to show you're a decent human being. So you threw all the right signals, and so like even though you can't quite explain it, you're cool with each other. It's fine. But when everything is different and you don't know if you're if the next thing is going to be an angry shouting match or massacre of the whole foreign settlement, you know, could do either way. It, there's, you just don't know. It's, it's really quite the thing to live with. It's better now. I mean, because it's, I mean, like you, there's not, you know, the, the, the current government of China is, is in control. They know what's going on. Okay, so they, there was a huge thing for foreign news because they, they wanted to be tapped into what's going on in their world, their empire, their stuff. They didn't really care about what was going on in China as much. Uh, the market for uh, Chinese souvenirs you know, was there. It's not fine taste for you know exquisite Chinese porcelain. It's just souvenirs. Uh, if you go to Beijing today, uh, the silk market in Beijing is where you can get just about everything. My favorite is Panjiayuan, the dirt market or the antiques market. Like there were plastic buckets full of reproductions of antique Chinese coins. Like if it's in a plastic bucket, you know, honestly, is that going to be an antique? Not really. Um, th- there were some other coins in plastic sleeves, and it's like, okay, maybe that's an actual antique. All sorts of Chinese military antique stuff, like, you know, like bugles or uniform items, holsters, binoculars, medals. It, it was a fascinating place. Uh, they came for many purposes. So then you have the other kind of foreigners. They come for many purposes, like maybe they're missionaries or they're long-term traders. But they want to get to know, to know the country they're living in. They learn to speak Chinese they learn to speak local dialects, they even learn to read Chinese, and they write guides and surveys and books about China as they experienced it, uh, trying to make China known to the outside world. When I was in China, I tried to get through these four classical novels uh, famous in, in, in Chinese literature. I only read the first half of one of them four or five times. So I got to know that first half of Romance of the Three Kingdoms pretty well. I have yet to finish that one. It's a big one. Um, the, the There was a huge market for you know, home products. You know, Though Chinese tried to create local clones of you know, foreign furniture and cooking, clothing, they, they, they'd write home for you know the good shoes, the the you know, good old English furniture, or whatever. Uh, there was a creation of a service sector 
layer of foreigners settling to uh, provide for the foreign settlement, you know, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, the you know, tailors, hairdressers. So even though you'd have Chinese servants learning to do some things, it just wasn't the same. So, and then the children of these people would find openings in the foreign community, and they'd intermarry with each other, and they'd settle down in foreign settlements. You know, I think it'd be a very interesting podcast, you know, just to do, just to explore, you know, like, like colonial life. Um, you know, it's, it's not, like, like it, it's humanly interesting, because... I've been an expat, and then looking at what it's like in different decades and different centuries. Um, uh, so just, you know, who goes overseas? Um, foreign settlements are also mu a much more convenient base from which foreigners could push off into deeper areas of China. So the opening of the treaty ports meant that some things that were already going on could continue to happen, but from much, much more convenient bases. So missionaries could work openly in the cities where they were allowed. So under the treaties, the missionaries were allowed in certain restricted areas. They could do preaching and evangelism. They could openly operate hospitals and educational institutions and charity efforts. But missionaries could base their printing presses, which previously had operated in what is now Indonesia or Malaysia, they could operate them on the Chinese mainland, and then you just walk over to the border and hand things off to your distribution network, or you have people from the countryside coming in to visit the city, and oh my goodness, I get to meet this foreigner. He gives me this book in Chinese, and so then they can take that home with them. So it's easier than if you have to uh, load up a ship with what you think might help you, and then just try your luck turning up at a, at a port well, they're, they're based right there in a city, and so it's much easier to access the, the interior, even if it's not exactly allowed. Um, they could sneak into inland China, or they could go across the bay from the, from the port they're permitted to operate from, because now they're based somewhere on the coast of China directly. Traders trying to push the envelope could slip across the bay, down the river, maintain a ship beyond the harbor limits from a closer base. You know, so they, there's all, always these things about you know, trans-shipping. So you bring it in, and then some ship comes in from the coast, and you put your foreign stuff onto the Chinese ship, and they give you the money or whatever it is. They would do this all the time, often with opium, and so then they could do this from Shanghai, from um, other cities that have opened on the coast. I think Ningbo was one. They, they, so this really shortened the supply line for getting a lot of the little details of business done. Uh, the uh, police forces were created to patrol foreign settlements. This would drive off Chinese beggars 
they would keep local foreigners in line, so at least you got the opportunity to be arrested by somebody who looks like you. And these were made up of whoever they could find. You know, soldiers and sailors who is, whose enlistment had expired, perhaps deserters. It's fascinating how porous the borders were uh, for the armed services. Like today, I don't think you could go to Iraq or Afghanistan and then, yeah, your, your enlistment's up. You can just stay over here, I guess. No, I think you'd have to go home and then figure it out from there. Well, just where a lot of the foreigners would come up, where it would come from, like especially in the lower classes, the people who were going to turn into like the, the working class in the foreign settlements, they were former soldiers and sailors, whether they were in the Navy or they were just coming off a ship. Um, sometimes just jumping to the other side of the world was easier than trying to make it work at home, and so they just go overseas and just stay. Uh, if you ever read the poem Mandalay by Rudyard Kipling, it's about this British ex-soldier pining for his Burmese girlfriend now that he's back in London. So you, you could... You'd have people going over there for for opportunity, uh, and you know they they transplanted colonial police from Hong Kong later from Shanghai as that developed. So you you'd have people moving around at different points in their careers between these foreign settlement ports. There were there's a creation of militias to protect foreign settlements. You know, some companies chose where to settle their compounds based on how easy the location could be defended or resupplied. You know, and the days of the East India Company and armed merchant ships, heavily armed merchant ships, uh, and you know, private armies was not that not that long before. Though though the control by the central state in London was more involved at this point in history. Um. You know, organizing a militia to protect your neighborhood was kind of a thing. Um, you know, when, with the Taiping Rebellion and the Boxer Rebellion and other, up, you know, times of unrest, you know, and then the town was put to the sword is a, is a frighteningly common theme in many wars throughout history. So, yeah, you're going to organize a militia. Foreign architecture and city planning. I don't have a lot that I want to say about this, but company buildings could be built for prestige, for luxury, for comforting reminders of home, impressive places to meet Chinese business partners. There was the construction of public gardens kept for foreigners only or for nice classes of Chinese people. Um, this you know, Shanghai settlement would be a very interesting thing to explore in depth. There's a novel I read about it. I I forget what it's called. Um, I'm going to have to dig that one up for you. The way streets were paved, uh, st the way street lights were erected, you know, this was a kind of a, a model of an alternate way China could be. So later when you have the rise of a new class of Chinese professionals, you know, military, civil service, or business classes trained along foreign lines, they're going to take inspiration from seeing these things built in China, you know, but the, the real revolution is going to be where Chinese are 
the owners of what you see. Like if you go to the Shanghai Bund today, it's like, yeah, you still have most of the the beautiful buildings built by the foreign trading companies and all that, but there's Chinese flags on all of it. It's it's all Chinese now. China owns it. Um, and now they they build their cities whatever way they want, and it's not you know, the, the, like there's a funny thing like when somebody does something for you, like do, do you ever totally undo it so that you can redo it so that you can be the one who did it? Sometimes you don't care. I I, I do care. Like if somebody makes my bed, it's like what what are you doing? You know, like if I visit my grandparents or something, it's, it's like what are you doing? You know, I, it's like I I know you're being nice, but like. I'm going to redo this so that I so that it's done the way I want it, even if it looks terrible. Um, so the uh, you know, so like like for like the the revolutionary change here in China is going to be you know, they're going to see all these things that the foreigners are doing, but the real accomplishment is going to be when the Chinese will take it over. And they will do it themselves. They will come up with their own methods. They will come up with their own ways of doing things. That uh, they will take ownership of all of it. Like th there were different times when foreigners would try to build a road or build a railroad in China. Well, it would fall apart because it's not a Chinese thing. But now China has built railroads running all over the country. I've ridden them personally many, many times, but it's now it's all Chinese. The revolution has finally come to pass, and they own all of it. Um, I'm going to end with this one thing. Uh, the Chinese, okay, so this is, we're talking about the extraterritoriality and the kind of legal bubbles that foreign settlements were. Chinese might flee to foreign settlements because of security and stability. Like, so for example, Hong Kong during many times of unrest, it was safe there because, well, the British were running it and it wasn't part of whatever the Chinese unrest was. And they were stable places from which to do business. Um, also, extraterritoriality for foreigners that provided a protective bubble for Chinese running from the regime. So as we get closer to this, the overthrow of the Qing, uh, more and more of our Chinese revolutionaries are going to, to take refuge in foreign settlements or even foreign countries. Uh, the life of Sun Yat-sen, kind of the Chinese George Washington, uh, in London even, there's going to be some of this playing out, but we'll get to that when we get to the life of Sun Yat-sen. Uh, the the Communist Party of China held its first national congress in the French concession in Shanghai. China's national government couldn't go in there and bust them. Uh, and the French authorities might not have liked communists, but they weren't pursuing them with the same urgency as the, you know, as the nationalist government, I believe it was at that time, the Republic of China. So... That was the so the, so that was today's episode on foreign settlements in China, and next week we're going to come back for the development of the customs service 
and the training of translators, uh, also the development of a system of lighthouses, because uh, building transportation infrastructure was really, really important for supporting foreign trade. Well, the the foreigners are doing this all for their own interests. They have this idea of you know, civilizing China. Well, we're going to take a look at some of that next week. And, you know, though it's led by foreigners, the enhancement of the Qing imperial state apparatus and the enforcement of modern international notions of borders and sovereignty is going to be additional stuff that Chinese reformers and revolutionaries can grab onto as they seek to rebuild China in the way that they'd like to see it. That that's a lot of this is going to come through the interaction between China and foreign powers through the colonial system. So that has been this week's episode of Chinese Revolutions. And again, if you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. Uh, the Substack it, it's back as a thing. Now I know what to do with it. Um, so if you'd like to get the show notes for episodes that I've been doing, I'm going to clean them up a bit so that they're a little easier for you to use and benefit from. Uh, ChineseRevolutions.substack.com And please send me an email. Tell me what you think. Uh, ChineseRevolutions at gmail.com and again, I am your host, Nathan Bennett, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>